On April 6, 1917, the United States of America officially entered into what would be called the Great War by declaring war in Germany. This war was unlike anything the world had ever seen up to this point, and in many ways, America was not prepared for such an endeavor. This week's guest shares how America's favorite sport and the Great War had somewhat of a synergistic relationship, and it all revolved around a pigskin. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is November 11th, 1918, and we are on the front lines of the Great War to witness our troops celebrating the Armistice Agreement that officially ended the fighting of World War I. Finally, the war has ended! But as we learned in this interview, as troops would come back home to America, it would also help launch something. The National Football League. Well, the American Professional Football Association at that time. But this is where Chris Serb comes into the picture. His book, War Football, World War I and the Birth of the NFL, covers wartime football and how it helped launch the seed, or plant the seed, that is, for professional football. If you are interested in his book, you can purchase this through my Amazon link on the website, which you can find at thefootballhistorydo.com slash Chris Serb. That's Chris S-E-R-B. Again, thefootballhistorydo.com slash Chris Serb. Also, while you're at it, I ask that you please subscribe for free to this show by bashing that little subscribe button in your podcast player of choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest of the press episodes we'll each and every week. But how about a little bit of a background on Chris? His bio, if you will. Chris Serb is a captain on the Chicago Fire Department by day and a veteran freelance writer by night with concentrations in sports and history. His 2019 book, War Football, World War I, and the Birth of the NFL, looks at how military football led to the growth of professional football and ultimately would help launch the NFL, less than two years after World War I. The Professional Football Researchers Association recently chose War Football as winner of the 2019 Nelson Ross Award for Outstanding Achievement in Pro Football Research. Besides that, this dude is just straight up passionate about professional football, wartime football, and how everything kind of mashed together to become what we know now as the NFL. And with that said, here is the interview with Mr. Chris Serb. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Football History Do Podcast. Thanks, Arnie. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, and so you have a book. It is War Football, World War I, and the Birth of the NFL. What was your inspiration to write this book? So really, my inspiration, I kind of stumbled into this book. I was researching an article on George Hallis and his time playing for the Great Lakes Naval Training Station, which if I didn't know better, I would have thought that was the only team that was around playing military football during World War I, because that was the only one that still gets any press. Uh, this was 15 years ago, so it was 85 years after the fact. And I started doing some research on George Hallis and this team, which was really great. They won the Rose Bowl. They were national champions for 1918. Uh, George Hallis was on the team uh, with two other Hall of Famers, Patty Driscoll and Jimmy Conselman. All three of them were in the Hall of Fame. Jimmy Conselman is a Hall of Fame player, but he wasn't even good enough to crack the starting lineup at Great Lakes. That's how good the team was. But I was doing some research on them, and you know, I knew that they had played Notre Dame. They played University of Illinois. They played all these uh, Big Ten colleges and, and big-time universities, and they didn't play a military team until the the Rose Bowl itself when they played the Mare Island Marines. But as I was looking up articles on Great Lakes, I'd see an article off to the side about Camp Dodge versus Grant Camp Grant or Chicago Naval Reserves versus Camp Custer. Or, uh, and I'm like, what are these places? So I started digging in a little more, and then I would recognize names uh, like George Trafton played for Camp Grant of Rockville, Illinois. I'm like, wait a second. I know that guy. He's a pro football hall of famer. I'd see other names that I recognized that were college football hall of famers, other players that uh, had solid pro careers if they weren't hall of famers. So the more and more I d dug into this, the more research I did on Hallis 
and looked at the articles that were alongside him, I said, wait a second, this was a lot bigger than just George Halas. This was a lot bigger than just Great Lakes. This really was a nationwide network of military football teams that were really top flight football teams as good as or or better than the college teams of the day. And they really launched the NFL as we know it within a couple of years after the war ended. So uh, that really was my inspiration. It started with Halas and it ended with Halas, but it really had a lot of interesting stories in between there. So would this be considered not only an NFL or a pro football history book, would it also be considered a military history book then a little bit? Definitely, definitely. And I would have loved to have told the story. The book's 200 and some pages. If I had told the story I really wanted to tell, it would have been 10,000 pages, but nobody would have read it because it would have been, it would have basically been notes and footnotes and anecdotes. And some of them might've been interesting to uh, the general public, but most only to the, the professional researcher. But there really was a lot of good military stuff in there. The, uh, the whole phenomenon of war football was really born out of necessity. You had uh, the U.S. joined the war, declared war on, uh, on Germany in April of 1917, and we weren't ready. We just weren't ready to go to war. We had a small army at the time, a small, smallish navy at the time. We had to get the troops up to speed. We had to draft them. We had to train them. We had to equip them. We had to, we had to turn these raw recruits, these guys that were, might've been physically, uh, physically underdeveloped at the time too. I know there were studies that came out after the war that said, boy, we, uh, we really have to do a better job of physical education in our schools because these soldiers just weren't up to fighting snuff. It took a long time to get them into shape. Well, there were all these big commissions that were put together to study how do we get these soldiers into shape? How do we how do we whip them into from uh, from raw recruits into true soldiers in the least amount of time possible? And these commissions came up with the idea that sports is the answer. Let's have them play football. Let's have them box. Let's have them do underwater basket weaving. Whatever it might be that gets them physical, gets them active, gets them learning some things with muscle memory and stuff. And this also, especially early in the war, it was partly out of necessity because they didn't have enough equipment for them to train with. They didn't have enough guns. They were, the, the tanks might have been made out of cardboard, simulated uh, simulated type of war games type of stuff. So they, uh, sports was easy to get folks into with a minimal amount of equipment and effort. And then uh, at the same time, these, these big commissions were looking at how do we whip the troops into shape. There was another big commission. It was called the FOSDIC Commission. They were... Uh, they were also tasked with studying uh, studying certain other problems that specifically revolved around vice. They were concerned that you were setting up these cities of 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 soldiers in the middle of nowhere. How do we keep them out of the saloons and away from the <laughs> red light district? And that was the answer that the FASDIC Commission came up with was sports is the answer. Let's let the boys play football. So uh, so really, war football started kind of on an intramural basis. Let's have all the troops play with one another, physically harden themselves, uh, and then some high military officials and high football officials. And Walter Camp happened to be both. He was uh, he was basically the inventor of American football as we know it, and he also secured an appointment as uh, athletic director for the Navy Department. So he was kind of in charge of physical training for the Navy. Uh, they realized, wait a second, we've got twenty thousand guys in this small little town that just sprung up overnight, a couple of hundred of them probably paid, played college football and maybe 50 or 60 were played big 10 caliber football or, or other big time football. Maybe seven or eight of them were even all Americans. Why don't we set up football teams that represent these whole bases and have them challenge other bases and the big colleges to football games? So that's really where so, so war football really had kind of two different levels. You had that intramural level, which was great. It got sh soldiers into shape. It uh, it kept them uh, kept them away from the general's young daughters and the <laughs> and the red light districts and stuff like that. But you had uh, you had phase two, which was the varsity caliber military football team playing other fo military football teams and other college teams, and that's really what war football focuses on. But it was it was a solution to a military problem, but it had a wonderful ending as far as sports goes. So then with football, why, why do you think that it was football as one of the big sports that they, that they decided to go to for military? I think probably the driving force was Walter Camp because he loved football so much. He really pushed football. Uh, he had some arguments that really sound good on the surface, but 
it was also a bit of self promotion too. He loved his game. He was he was Mister Football. He was the he was the uh, the father of American football. But he uh, the arguments that he made that were pretty compelling was football teaches teamwork. It teaches self reliance. It teaches thinking on your feet. It obviously has the physical hardening aspect. Uh, it, there were a lot of qualities that Walter Camp kind of connected between football and soldiering that really made a lot of sense in, uh, in, in, and especially as he spun it and sold it to the American public and to the athletic directors at the individual army camps and, uh, and Navy camps. So it made a lot of sense and people kind of, people embraced it based on what Walter Camp said. Now they embraced other things too. Boxing was really popular, especially in the Navy, but, uh, but football took on a special quality, especially because you could get 22 guys at a time involved where boxing, it's only, it's only one-on-one with maybe 10,000 spectators cheering them on. But, uh, but football really, really lent itself to, uh, to the mass participation that, that the, that the army and the Navy and the Marine Corps were after. Yeah. I mean, it's easy now for many civilians and myself included, I fall in the trap of comparing football to military. And I guess from a strategic perspective, yes, that's the case. I don't want to take anything away from military because obviously they're not the same thing. But one side of me thinks that maybe all those things you just said kind of tends to believe that football leads into helping them on the battlefield for various reasons. Of course, other sports would too, but just football to me, the gridiron and all that kind of have a different uh, feel to it. Uh, Walter Camp is very important to football. We know this, the father of American football. If you could describe or sum up his contributions to the game in one sentence, what would it be? Ha. Huh. Well, he really molded and shaped football as we know it. He developed so many of the rules. He steered the uh he steered football's he steered football's early rulemaking committees. He was heavily involved with Yale as a coach and as a mentor to the coaches at Yale, uh, which is where he had played. Uh, but probably his biggest contribution that lives on today is the All-America team that uh, was kind of his baby that he started back in 1889 and was still doing full bore at the time of World War I. Kind of interestingly, uh, during World War I, Walter Camp thought that the all-service team was a bigger deal than the all-America team. So in fact, in one of the years of World War I, he didn't even name an all-America team, just an all-service team of the, the best Army, Navy, and Marine players. And, and that was kind of a big deal. You know, there were, and a lot of those guys were familiar names who had been on the All-America teams before the war, but some of them were guys that just kind of emerged out of nowhere. There was a tackle for the Chicago Naval Reserves, Chris Bentz. He was uh, first team All-Service, and he was he was uh, nothing special in college. He actually was a very good college player, but he played in relative obscurity. He played at uh, University of Montana, and Walter Camp, being on the East Coast, probably had never heard of him. He, he had scouts all across the country that told him who the best players were, but uh, he definitely kind of had an Eastern bias towards players that he could see for himself. So, You mentioned that he felt that military that one year was more important, and then they played college games. Were these public draws where there would be fans in the stands? Definitely, definitely. And and they were huge draws. They sold really well. A lot of the military games, now a lot of the military games were on bases, played on bases so that the soldiers could go. Uh, you know, you had, again, you had these little cities of 40,000 people. You'd get all 40,000 of them for a, for a big game. But Wrigley Field in here in Chicago, uh, the Polo Grounds in Ebbets Field in New York City, uh, Cincinnati's Major League Baseball Field, uh, a lot of the uh, Fenway Park hosted some games, uh, Harvard Stadium and the Yale Bowl, which were as big or bigger than any Major League Baseball stadium. Uh, those places sold these games out. It was super, super popular with the public. And probably, uh, unfortunately, we don't have any marketing studies to tell us why. It probably had a little bit to do with the patriotism aspect. You know, let's support Uncle Sam by supporting these Army, Navy, and Marine football teams. But it also had a lot to do with the fact that these were the first all-star teams ever formed. You know, you had this guy was an All-American at Harvard in 1915, and he's playing with a guy who was All-American at Michigan in 1912, and this guy from Notre Dame, and this guy who was All-Big Ten at Ohio State. You kind of had this, this wonderful uh, mixing of players with different experiences, different backgrounds, 
all really good players coming together on the field for the first time. And this was something that the public really bought into. And uh, they definitely, and the ticket tickets were probably about 25 cents at the time. So it was <laughs> right. definitely, definitely worth the price of admission and then some. Did some of that money go back into the military or support the war efforts then? Much of it did. Much of it did. Uh, a lot of the games were specifically earmarked for a widows and orphans fund, or uh, depending on what the camp playing the game might have been. If uh, Camp Sherman of Chillicothe, Ohio, is uh, a famous example, they uh, they played all over the state of Ohio. They did a barnstorming tour going all across the state, playing colleges, playing military camps, and raising as much money for the camp's welfare fund as they could. So this went directly back to the soldiers. It uh, it help them with their leisure time and help them buy athletic equipment, things like that. But they raised uh, $150,000 over the course of six games, which is equivalent to about $3 million, I think, in, in 2020 terms. So this really was a big deal, a big draw. They sold out everywhere they went, and they were a very good team. They, uh, I think they went 6-2 and two was their final record. Uh, two of the games that they played were doubleheaders, so it was only it was only six dates that they raised the 150000 over. But they were... They had several players who ended up playing in the NFL, and their coach, uh, their coach Bud Talbot, uh, was the original coach of the Dayton Triangles, one of the charter NFL teams back in 1920. So uh, they're they're just one example, but there are plenty of really good examples of uh, of teams that that raised money for the camps, for the soldiers, for the sailors, and the public really bought into that as well. Now you mentioned they were a very good team. Would you consider them? the best military camp team or was there another one that just was more dominant? Uh, camp Sherman was not, they, they were six and two. They lost two games to colleges. Uh, they were a very good team in 1917. There were several teams in 1917 that were, that were very good. Uh, probably the best of the batch was the Mare Island Marines in 1917. They went undefeated. They won the Rose bowl in 1917. Uh, they they were featured mostly uh, Oregon players. They had they'd all played together at University of Oregon, with a couple of exceptions, a couple of guys who came from elsewhere. So so teamwork uh, wasn't a problem for these guys. They had won the Rose Bowl in. 1917 as Oregon players and then came right back and did it again in 1918 as players for the Mare Island Marines. So hmm. and John Beckett was the uh, was the star of that team, college football Hall of Famer, did play a couple games in the NFL, but ultimately found a career in the Marine Corps. He uh, he fought in World War Two. He retired as a general. But uh, yeah, Mare Island was probably the best team in 1917. The best team in 1918 was probably Great Lakes uh, Naval Training Station, who won the Rose Bowl that year and uh, they were undefeated. They they did have two ties early in the season. Again, when teamwork wasn't quite up to snuff because they were these guys were all stars, but they were just figuring each other out. But uh, they had the three NFL Hall of Famers or the three Pro Football Hall of Famers in George Hallis, Patty Driscoll, and Jimmy Conselman. Uh, so they were uh, definitely among the best teams of 1918, if not the best team. Uh, Camp Greenleaf down in Georgia was undefeated. Kelly Field in Texas was undefeated. You had some, you had some really, really solid teams. Uh, and then in Europe, there was a, uh, a tournament after the war ended. Uh, you had you know, a million soldiers that had to stay for several months. You had to keep the peace. You had the uh, the, the peace treaty talks at Versailles going on. You had to occupy uh, occupy defeated Germany. We had a need for troops over there, but they had really little to do. So that Fosdick Commission intervened and and said, "Hey, let's 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 set up some sports in Europe." So there was a really big football tournament in Europe, AEF uh, American Expeditionary Forces tournament in the the winter and spring of 1919 and. The team that emerged as the champion of that. This was really the the first large scale football playoff you had ever seen. You, you know, you had a couple hundred teams competing in brackets that were narrowing and narrowing more and more as the spring went on. And the team that won it all was the 89th Division, which uh, which was uh, which was based out of Kansas. They had trained together at Camp Funson, Kansas. But uh, Patsy Clark, an old player from University of Illinois, was the star of that team. Uh, Paul Withington was the captain of the team. He had been an All-American at Harvard. And they were definitely the cream of the crop in Europe, although there were a lot of other really good teams in Europe, too. It, was, uh, it would have been an exciting time to have been a football fan. And I really wish that we had more movies of uh, some of these games because, because the stuff is just really, it's fascinating enough to read about it in the old newspaper clippings. I, I just wish I could have seen it in person or seen it on a, on a newsreel. Yeah. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because you've obviously gone through a lot of research. 
um, what, what what have been your your resources, whether it be primary, secondary? You have any interviews? Even though I know probably not primary interviews. Unfortunately, yeah, the primary interviews, the uh, everyone that played probably the uh, the last of the, I, and I remember reading about Hamilton Fish in Sports Illustrated back in back in 1990 when he had just turned 100. I'm like, boy, I would love to talk to this guy, and he died a couple years later. He lived to be 102, but uh, so that's still you know 19. 19- 1991, I think he died. I was I, I was 20 years old. I hadn't even thought of doing uh, uh, a book like this and hadn't made the connection to war football. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't able to interview anybody, but uh, just combed through uh, hundreds and hundreds and, and thousands of newspaper articles, uh, contemporary newspaper articles for back in the day. I did it mostly old school, did it mostly through the microfiche, uh, scrolling through old rolls of uh, you know the major newspapers from the major cities, but also trying to find smaller newspapers, uh, camp newspapers, base newspapers when I could find them. Uh, so that was the bulk of my research. And there was some secondary research, folks that... Uh, folks that uh, wrote about their experiences 30, 40 years later. But really the bulk of my research was the primary sources, the newspaper articles that came out the day after a big football game or or uh, previewing that weekend's football game. So that was that was where I found the the bulk of my material, the real meat of the of the subject. How did you take so much because obviously there's there's small articles when you compare them to a book. How did you take so many different articles and keep track of them to condense them into creating a chaptered book. It was difficult. And I think my first draft of the book had about 50 some chapters and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work. So I kind of, I kind of had to hone it and winnow it and really focus on what my most important teams and who my most important players were. So I focused on the teams that were the best, uh, the players that were in some cases, the best players in some other cases, players that might not have been the best, but that had some historical significance and a couple, uh, a couple that were pretty historically significant to, for reasons that had nothing to do with football were, uh, Omar Bradley, who was the last of America's five-star generals, uh, played tackle for Camp Dodge of Des Moines, Iowa in 1918. He was a, uh, he had played, he had, he was a backup, but he had played at, at West Point on their national championship team in 1914. And, uh, and uh, was 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 frustrated that he couldn't go to France. He was stuck at at Camp Dodge. He, I think they had orders to deploy at the end of November, and then the uh, the uh, the war ended on November 11th. So he was he was stuck in place. But he used that as an opportunity to play some football. So uh, so Omar Bradley, who wound up having a pretty big effect on on uh, on history as the 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 chief ground commander of Allied forces during or American forces during World War II. And then uh, Bradley's teammate, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, coached a team, the 12th Division All-Stars in San Antonio, Texas in 1917. And Ike had been a football player at West Point too, but tore up his knee and had to quit playing football as a sophomore. But uh, Ike actually continued coaching football all the way through 1926. He coached at various army camps and uh, coaching was a really big part of his life through his uh, young adulthood and even into his the middle of his military career uh, in uh, as a, as of 1926 and we talked about some of the football terminology earlier Ike was a guy that uh, when he was uh, when he was uh, head of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in Europe, he was a guy who would say, hold that line and make an end run and stuff like that, kind of using the the football me- metaphors for military operations. So Ike, uh, Ike got a chapter there. Uh, Omar Bradley got a chapter. And Omar Bradley also got a chapter. Uh, he shared a chapter with a guy named Frank Pollard, who... Uh, most of us football fans are familiar with Frank's brother, Fritz Pollard, who's a pretty significant guy, uh, college football Hall of Famer, pro football Hall of Famer, uh, the first black quarterback in the NFL, the first black coach in the NFL. Uh, Frank Pollard uh, was the only black player in the, to integrate a war football team during World War I. So he his playing wasn't that big of a deal. He played a few minutes as a substitute end in one game for Camp Grant in 1918, Camp Grant out of Rockford, Illinois. But he... He beat Jim Crow in a way that his brother actually couldn't during World War One. Uh, uh, Fritz Pollard was in the army, but he was at a segregated army base, and he was physical director, specifically assigned to coach the African American troops at, at Camp Meade in Maryland. So, uh, so where Fritz, uh, 
where Fritz was uh, was segregated, uh, Frank Pollard was able to to integrate a team, if only for a few minutes. So, uh, so I kind of talked about the two, about Omar Bradley and Frank Pollard together. And Omar Bradley uh, ultimately desegregated the military as as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff thirty years later. But during one of his games for Camp Dodge, he played one of the best uh, tackles in the game at the time. Was a guy uh, was a guy named Duke Slater uh, who just was named to the Pro Football Hall of Fame a couple of months ago here. But that was pretty significant because Duke Slater was the only black player in the Big Ten at the time. And uh, the referee approached approached uh, Omar Bradley before. Omar Bradley was from the South. He was a Southerner and said, hey, is it okay that you're, that you're playing against, uh, against a black player? And he promised that he would play square with Duke Slater and some of Bradley's teammates weren't so fair. They, they took cheap shots at Slater, knocked him to the ground and always it was Omar Bradley over there, helping him up, helping him to his feet. So it's kind of uh, interesting. I, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'm making too much of it, but it's kind of interesting that, uh, that this guy who agreed to place uh, a Southerner who agreed to play square with his black, uh, his black opponent back in 1918, wound up desegregating the army 30 years later. So, kind of an interesting story there. Doesn't have anything to do with the NFL or the the start of pro football. I know, although Duke Slater was one heck of a pro football player, as uh, evidenced by his Hall of Fame election just a couple of months ago. Here, well, yeah, I mean, everything's somehow relatable. If you know the just even the culture and how people think, and he helped change some minds. Uh, speaking of changing minds, you mentioned many players coaches already during the war football time of world war one what would you name your mount rushmore your top four most important individuals top four most important individuals that's a good one uh george hallis would have to be there uh not just because of his effect on the NFL, but because if it wasn't for war football, we might not have had a George Hallis. He was really a pretty average player at University of Illinois. He was injured his entire sophomore year, injured again his entire junior year. He only he only got onto the field his senior year. He only played one year of college football, and he was nothing special. He was a starter all season, but he was he was far from a star. Nobody mentioned him for any All Big Ten teams or anything like that. He scored uh, he scored a total of two touchdowns in his college career. He was nothing special and then at great lakes he became a star he really emerged he seized a starting job early in early in training camp uh again at this highly competitive this was this was a a great team jimmy conselman the hall of famer couldn't get off the bench there or got off the bench but got you know kind of kind of scrub time late in the games uh so so uh hallis really that's really where Hallis the football player was born. And also that's where Hallis the networker was born. He brought a lot of Great Lakes players with him when he uh, was head of the Decatur Staley's in 1920. And then when he moved the Staley's up to Chicago, became the Bears afterwards. Uh, so Hallis was really big on networking with the other players and tapping into their networks too. And actually another player at Great Lakes, Patty Driscoll, uh, one of the other Hall of Famers, was a guy who had played uh, pro football, semi-pro football before the war. And he's the guy that talked Hallis into trying pro football after the war in the first place, at, at least if we believe George Hallis's autobiography. And there's no reason <laughs> not to, uh, given that story. Um, so definitely George Hallis would be on my Mount Rushmore. Uh, Patsy Clark, who was the star of the 89th Division that won the AEF tournament, uh, he would definitely be on the, the Mount Rushmore. He did not play in the NFL. He had a coaching job already lined up for after the war, but he did get into the coaching in the NFL afterwards and actually uh spent about 10 years coaching in the nfl coached the detroit lions to uh to a title in uh, 1935 i think it was so patsy clark's definitely up there uh cupid black is a guy that i would name uh he never played pro football he actually spurned pro football he had some offers after the war but he was uh he was the captain he was a guard and captain and uh just a really good player for the newport naval reserves in 1917 they were they were a top-notch team that year and they won the Northeast service championship played a really tough team from Boston Navy yard, which had a couple of Harvard players back when, back when Harvard was really a national power. Uh, so those three guys would be on my Mount Rushmore. I might have to think a couple minutes to, <laughs> to come up with a fourth, but there's, there's definitely a fourth out there. If I, if I look at my table of contents, I might come up with, right, uh, come yeah. up with it. But this, uh, this guy on the cover, 
I have no idea who he is. I just loved this picture. Uh, and, and that's definitely, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's football from a training camp in, uh, in San Antonio, Texas, uh, in 1917. Mm -hmm. So just a really neat picture, but yeah, I'll have to. Okay. I got to cut in right here because Chris talks about the photo on the cover of his book. And of course this is a podcast, so you can't see it unless you're watching on YouTube. But this is a reminder for you that you can go ahead and head to the show notes so you can see this photo, you can purchase his book, you can do a lot of other things and all the other stuff to learn more about Chris Sir. And the way you can do that is go to thefootballhistorydude.com slash Chris Serb. That's Chris, S-E-R-B. Again, thefootballhistorydude.com slash Chris Serb. But let's go ahead and get back in the interview. Boy, uh, Charlie Brickley might be on the Mount Rushmore, but he wasn't really that. Uh, he was named All Service in 1918, but uh, his team was only two and two. He didn't have a great team. He was kind of a one man team. But uh, one neat thing that Charlie Brickley did in 1918, November of 1918, after his season was already over, but there were still a few more games to be played, he went down to Wall Street dressed up in his. Uh, he played for Hoboken Naval Transport School, and he went there dressed up in his in his uniform and started kicking field goals into open windows across the street, across <laughs> Wall Street. And there was a there was a crowd of it looks like a crowd of about ten thousand people cheering him on and buying war bonds and buying tickets for that weekend's games. So uh, so uh, maybe not directly on the field of play, but uh, but he definitely had an effect. He also had an effect on the NFL. Uh, he tried to bring pro football to New York in 1919 and failed. He, uh, the blue laws uh, that prohibited sports on Sundays had been suspended earlier that year. And Charlie Brickley didn't realize the fine print was that they were suspended for baseball only, not for football. But then they were suspended a couple of years later, and he did bring pro football to New York in 1921. However, they stunk. He uh, <laughs> he he coached he he coached and was part owner of the original New York Giants, but uh, they only played two NFL games and they uh, they didn't score a single point. They uh, they got beat by an average of thirty six to nothing each game or something like that. So uh, and then the team folded after the year, but it kind of set a foothold for the the next New York Giants, which came in a couple years later, and which are the New York Giants we still know today. We talk about the uh, different camps. What was their turnover rate like? Uh, did they were players? I, I don't really know how long that takes for a player to get pr processed from being in camp to getting sent overseas. How long did it go from take that? The players were usually in camp for a whole season, but not always. You'd have some midseason transfers, some midseason troop shipments. Whether the whether a, a player. You know, he might have started your first three or four games, and then all of a sudden he got sent to officers training at a different camp. That happened pretty frequently. But for the most part, if you were in camp at the start of the football season, you would still be in that same camp eight weeks later or nine weeks later when uh, when the season was ending. That was your typical season was about nine weeks back then. Uh, and then if you were lucky enough to play in the Rose Bowl, it obviously got extended. But uh, uh Probably nine weeks of actual games and maybe a couple of weeks of uh, uh, probably uh, uh, the season typically ran from mid-September to uh, maybe the weekend after Thanksgiving. Uh, so usually you would stay together for the whole season. But then if if say you were on a team in 1917, you were usually long gone by 1918. If you played on one of these army teams in 1917, odds are you were on the front lines in France in 1918. And then if you were going to play war football again, it was going to be in the AAF. AEF tournament in 1919, which uh, a lot of these guys did. A lot, uh, Patsy Clark, uh, who I talked about with the 89th division, he had played at Camp Funston in 1917. Camp Funston had a team again in 1918. Uh, Dutch Sterneman, who was George Hallis's co-coach with the the early Chicago Bears, was on that team. But it was it was a totally different team. It was a bunch of different guys. Uh, they were drafted from different parts of the country. It's it's kind of interesting. It's you you don't get that uh, you don't get that loyalty or connection. I guess if if you have that much turnover, you might have been a Camp Funston fan in uh, 1917, but you're cheering for somebody totally different in 1918 because your favorite college guys are all going to a different camp so it's kind of interesting how the the turnover went yeah that was one of the reasons why i was wondering too from a fan perspective did they follow the players more and root for the players or were they rooting for like this camp is near my home town and i'm going to root for whichever camp it is I, I guess i didn't i was wondering how that would work normally 
probably a little bit of both. If you were if you were a Notre Dame fan, you were gonna root for the team that had the most Notre Dame players. Say uh, probably probably the way a lot of diehard college football fans. Uh, let's say you're a diehard Alabama fan and you have no real connections to the NFL. You're gonna cheer for the team in the NFL that has the most Alabama players, right? I know, uh, although I'm, I'm a diehard Northwestern fan uh, wearing my sweatshirt <laughs> right now, but uh, Green Bay Packers have the most uh, the most Northwestern players now, the most Northwestern alums, but uh, as a diehard Bears fan, I just can't do that. So, but, right, uh, yeah. but yeah, it's probably a little bit of a mix, uh, whether it was your, uh, your favorite players from college where they were playing their their war football, their military football, or whether it was just the base that was closest to you. And if you were in a big city, uh, you had a lot of options. Here in Chicago, you had uh, you had the Great Lakes Naval Training Station, uh, w- which was a big deal. It was just like 10 miles north of Chicago. You had the Chicago Naval Reserves, which played at what's now known as Navy Pier, uh, right in downtown Chicago. Uh, you had Camp Grant of Rockford, Illinois. You had, a, you had a lot of choices. You could be kind of discerning, discriminating. So maybe you can match up those rosters against, okay, I'm a... I'm a Michigan fan. Where where did that Michigan guy go? <laughs> right, yeah. It's just because it's a, more than 100 years later and the NFL has grown into just it's going to be a consistent, steady every year. I know there's going to be these 16 games. Well, now it's going to be changed in a little bit, but it's thinking about back then and how different it was for football. You keep talking about national championships and all these camps and teams that I've until I've started looking into football, I never even heard of most of this stuff. Most of these teams it just it baffles my mind that you know these off military bases were winning the uh, national championships, right? And outside of Great Lakes, I didn't know anything about any of them either. Like, a lot of them had closed before I was born, or when I was a when I was a young person. So it's kind of, it's pretty interesting. It was fascinating. Yeah, I had never heard of these bases, but again, I recognized some of the names, and I'm like, wait a second, this guy was a really good football player. <laughs> and right, uh, yeah. And speaking of that, um, we talked a little bit about 1918 and. Of course, there was, this is present nowadays, there's COVID-19 going on. It's similar. Everybody keeps comparing it to the Spanish influenza. How much did that affect football and military alike? It had a really big effect on football. It's uh, the deadliest month for the flu back in, uh, uh, there, there were, I think there were three different waves of the, of what was called the Spanish influenza, or, which actually it turns out it started in Kansas. It was, it was kind of misnamed, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Spanish flu, there were three different waves and the deadliest wave, the, the most the most significant part of the deadliest wave was in October 1918. Well, that's prime football season. Uh, that's when that's when football is really hitting its stride for the most part. So uh, I, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter to a third of the football season either got canceled or delayed. You know, if you had the traditional, uh, we're going to stop the season the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Uh, if the weather was still nice, you might have rescheduled some games uh, into the first week or second week of December. I know in uh, in California, games kept going all the way into New Year's too. Uh, California, the flu hit out there a little bit later than it did in the rest of the country, especially in the Midwest. So, but yeah, the Spanish flu was... Uh, was was pretty significant. Uh, you know, some teams might have played their season opener in late September, and then they didn't play again until November. Uh, some bases were on total quarantine, which meant teams couldn't even practice. Some were on a partial quarantine, which meant that they could practice. And in fact, uh, Mare Island, the Mare Island Marines, which uh, were national champions uh, and Rose Bowl champions in 1917 uh, for the 1918 Rose Bowl. Uh, in 1918, they had another good team, totally different roster, totally revamped roster, but uh, they had another really good team. They had a partial quarantine on their base. They couldn't leave the base, but they were allowed to practice. And it's probably good that they got to practice because the scrimmages between the first team and the second team, uh, the second team was as good of a team as the first team played. <laughs> they they uh yeah they they really beat up they beat some of these teams once once they got rolling in their season they were winning 62 to nothing 89 to nothing you know 34 to 10 just some some ridiculous scores until they got into the Rose Bowl playoffs then they started playing some tough teams so it's it's probably good that they got to have those full on scrimmages when uh when the base was on was on quarantine uh, one thing with uh with the 1918 season and the flu pandemic uh, there are a couple of there are a couple of what could have been questions, some games that were arranged that didn't happen because of the flu. And probably the biggest, I jotted it down here, uh, probably the biggest, you can't help but wonder what could have been 
if Great Lakes, which was the uh, Rose Bowl champion, the consensus uh, consensus best team in the country that season, what would have been if they had been able to play the University of Pittsburgh? And Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh is kind of the co-college champion of, of that season. Some selectors say that Michigan was the national champion. Some say that University of Pittsburgh was. But Pittsburgh was uh, a dominant team. Uh, Pop Warner was the coach. And uh, they did have one loss, in fact, late in the season. They lost to a military team in a very controversial game. They lost to the the Cleveland Naval Reserves. But early in the season, they were supposed to play Great Lakes. And what a great game that would have been. You have the best of the college. You have the best of, of the military teams. Wouldn't it have been great to have seen the result? Uh, but then again, if Great Lakes had lost the game, and that's entirely possible because it was early in the season, they hadn't really rounded into form. Uh, they had a couple of early season ties, so they, they really hadn't quite gelled at a team. Uh, that probably would have knocked them out of Rose Bowl contention. And then maybe George Hallis would have never become George Hallis. So maybe in a way it's good that, uh, that that game was canceled. So, uh, yeah, you never know. It's one of those what could have been, but then it's also, also might be, be careful what you wish for too. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, there's a lot of those things of, uh, what's it called? The butterfly effect. And then the typhoon across right. The, right. The, the world goes on. I mean, George Hallis, of course, is one of the most influential. It's easy to consider possibly putting him on the NFL, Mount Rushmore. Uh, there any other players or moments that you, you, you dug up that maybe were like, holy crap, that's, a, that's super interesting that you never knew about or any, most people never knew about. Well, yeah, a couple of a couple of moments really stood out to me. Two of the best games, uh, and they both took place in 1918. Two of the best games that happened in war football, and I'm done. Just page through here. Uh, two of the best games that happened in 1918. One one did involve George Hallis, but he was he was far removed from the the most significant play in it. But uh, Great Lakes uh, beat the Naval Academy seven to six. Uh, Naval Academy was one of the best college football teams that year. They were undefeated that whole season. This was November 1918. Uh, Great Lakes was down six to nothing in the fourth quarter. And Naval Academy was driving. They were they were down to the ten yard line. It wasn't looking good. Even a field goal would have put the game out of reach. And then Navy fumbled uh, on the ten yard line. Uh, George Hallis was on the end of the line. He wasn't involved in the play, but a Great Lakes halfback named Dizzy Ielson scooped up the ball. And before any of the Naval Academy players realized what was happening, he was already downfield. He was racing for daylight. And uh, Navy's coach was a Hall of Fame coach named. Gil Doby was screaming, tackle him, tackle him, even though none of his players were within 10 yards of Dizzy Eilson. So he had this this player, a uh, guy named Bill Saunders, uh, bench warmer, was sitting on the bench still wearing his warm-ups. And he heard his coach, and he jumped up and still wearing his <laughs> warm-ups. He ran onto the field, and he, he flattened Eilson. So, and then the teams got into a scuffle on the field. The refs quickly restored order and, uh, and, uh, awarded the touchdown to great lakes. But, uh, that was, uh, that was a great game, a great moment in a great game. And that ultimately, if, if, if great lakes doesn't win that game, they probably don't go to the Rose bowl. So that was, uh, that was one of the neatest stories that I discovered in uh, when I was researching war football. Another one, and I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, uh, University of Pittsburgh, they were undefeated in their college games that year, but they played a postseason game against the Cleveland Naval Training Station, and they lost. And that was uh, – uh, the Cleveland Naval Trading Station or Cle Cleveland Naval Reserves were, uh, they were a great team. They had a chance to go to the Rose Bowl too. And they, early in the season, they were playing against the Chicago Naval Reserves, the the Navy Pier football team, and turned the ball over late in the game. Uh, uh, Chicago was up 6 nothing, but Cleveland was about to score, but they turned the ball over on the two-yard line. You know, what what could have been, right? So uh, uh, Pete Stinchcomb, a uh, guy who had played at Ohio State, was the guy who fumbled that ball. Pete wound up playing in the NFL later too, being a, a pretty good NFL player not a hall of fame caliber but but uh the hall of very good i guess but uh so uh so this was pete cinchcomb's chance at redemption uh against pitt and the uh pitt was winning most of the game but didn't have a didn't have a dominant lead didn't dominate the game in any way and uh a couple of calls went against pitt and pop warner uh the coach of pitt at the time thought that the refs the fix was in that the refs had it out for uh, against Pitt and they wanted the military team to win and stuff. And uh, so late in the game, uh, late in the fourth quarter, Pete Stinchcomb uh, uh, caught a touchdown pass on a, on a trick play, kind of what we would probably call today a flea flicker. 
So he caught a, he caught a thirty five yard touchdown pass, and so he redeemed his uh, his earlier mistake against the Chicago Naval Reserves, scored the winning touchdown, and uh, Cleveland Naval Reserves won ten to nine. But uh, Pop Warner, to his dying day, insisted that he had been cheated, and University <laughs> of Pittsburgh never included that game in their official records for decades they finally just probably around 2005 or so they finally said okay we can let bygones be bygones and are now including it huh. in their in their official records in their uh, in their media guide and and stuff like that but pop warner was convinced that he had been cheated but uh but it was a great game a great finish and uh to a lot of folks it was symbolic too because uh there was an ongoing argument is college football better or is military football better in uh, 1918? And that was kind of the game that uh, that decided, though not definitively, it was only a one-point game, but that decided that uh, that military football was better than college football, at least for that season. Yeah, I mean, later on, there would be the argument, is college football better than professional football? And they'd play each other every year for, geez, for right, a long right. time. Yeah, the college all-stars versus the champs. That was, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, that was a pretty neat tradition. It's kind of sad to see it go. Yeah, a lot of weren't a lot of the games, if not all of them, played over there by you, Wrigley Field or Soldier. Field I think there was the, yeah, Soldier Field was the uh, was the site, and if not all of them, most of them were definitely played there. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was a. I think it ended when I was a child. It must have ended in the in the early nineteen seventies. But uh, kind of a shame. Yeah, they had a they had a nice long standing tradition there. I just wonder if nowadays. If that would even work, if they would even be competitive, uh, granted they do play together, so there is that advantage. But I don't know, just the game speed is so much different when you jump from the college to the the NFL. I ranks. know, yeah, it's a it's a different beast. It's uh, it's uh, well, it's like going from high school to college too. I I imagine you right. get you get with mm-hmm. the nutrition plan, you get uh, you get some more professional coaching. You uh, you're able to you're able to compartmentalize your life in a way that you couldn't in high school, and probably. Once you hit the pros, it becomes even more so. Right. Yeah. That's like your only thing you're doing now. Do you ever consider writing another book or has that crossed your mind? I'll consider it at some point. I, uh, I'm a bit tied up with things right now. I'm, uh, I've got, I've got two small children and, uh, yeah, the, the book took me about 15 years to, to research and write. Uh, I've got, I've got two small children now, so I don't have a, a ton of time to do a, a book project. And, uh, I'm also on the Chicago fire department right now, uh, uh, captain and, uh, uh, testing for a, for a chief's position. So that test, so that test oh, process cool. will hopefully be over sometime within the next couple of months. It got delayed for a couple of reasons and now it's, uh, it's delayed again because of the COVID-19. So, uh, yeah, uh, football isn't the only thing that gets, uh, that gets screwed up by, by a pandemic, I suppose, but, uh, we're doing our best over here. So. Yeah. More important things come up. And, uh, speaking of that, if you could go back 15 and a half years, 16 years, and you could tell yourself one piece of advice for writing the book, what would it have been? I would say don't chase the don't chase the story trying to find a conclusion. I started compiling I I, I tried to go through the pro the all minute. Once I realized how many NFL players had played pro football, I wanted to prove that it was a thousand, you know, which was of course unprovable. I was able to prove that there were uh, over 240, and it might have been over 300. It might have even been over 400. But the the record keeping was so spotty; it was very difficult to find. I would have to cross reference articles, and you know, maybe go on Ancestry.com once that tool was available and see. Wait a second, did he do military service at all during? So I was trying to chase individual people just to verify whether or not they played in the NFL and played war football and wasn't spending enough of my efforts on the stories. And the stories really are the heart of the matter. Uh, once I once I had a critical mass, once I had at least 100 players that I could verify, I should have just focused more on the stories because um, I, I feel like I, I wouldn't say that I wasted a lot of time, but it would have been time better spent on chasing the stories, researching the good stories instead of trying to identify people. Because I have a nice little appendix with the, you know, with 
pro football or uh, with war football players of notes, but uh, the stories are really what drives the book and the stories are, are, are what I enjoyed telling. And I imagine the stories are what the reader enjoys reading too. So I, that's what I would have told my, my much younger self, but, but it's still, it, it was just different route to get to the same end. I guess, uh, I guess I still wound up telling the good stories. It just took me longer to tell them because I was off chasing red herrings, I suppose. <laughs> so then would that be the piece of advice that you would give to aspiring authors for NFL historians right now? I guess. Yeah. It's always has to come down to the story. You know, uh, my first attempt at war football, my first draft, uh, I showed to my wife, who's a high school English teacher. And she said, this is really kind of a dry recitation of facts. This doesn't, you really don't have much of a narrative. And I'm like, huh? You're right. So I went back to the drawing board and really refocused it on streamlining it into stories and focusing on who was most important. Again, you know, the the early draft had I don't know somewhere in the in the neighborhood of fifty chapters, and there were some really good stories that I didn't get to tell. Uh, like the Chicago Naval Reserves, I, I touch upon them in the Great Lakes chapter, but only in the context of of uh, them as a rival to Great Lakes. I, I I did have a chapter on them. I wound up leaving it on the cutting room floor because. They just weren't as important in the in the context of the birth of the NFL. So uh, I left it on the cutting room floor. However, I did resurrect a bunch of that stuff on my Twitter page because they had some really good photos, some really uh, really nice photos that uh, that were from the Chicago Daily News. So so that was I was able to tell the story that way at least. But yeah, a lot of stories that seemed interesting were really fascinating to me. But I kind of had to had to focus on what was going to be most interesting to the reader. And again, that's why the book starts and ends with Hallis, but there's a whole lot of good stuff in between. Yeah. And I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes and on your dedicated page on the website, as I do for everything. And then um, one question I have to ask you that I ask everybody is I'm going to give you the keys to my DeLorean. You can go back in time. Now, of course, considering your book, you can go back to any point in war football history and you can be there present, but you can't change the outcome. Where are you going to go so you can experience it? I would go to the AEF tournament, uh, specifically to the AEF finals in Paris. Uh, it was just an electric time. The These 200 or so football teams had winnowed down to, uh, uh, it, originally it was supposed to be eight teams, but uh, it wound up being seven teams in the finals. One of the, one of the teams wound up getting a bye. And uh, over the course of a couple of weeks in Paris, you had, tens of thousands of soldiers there. You had uh, General John Pershing was there. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was in Paris at the time, uh, President Wilson. And I, I, I'm shocked that he didn't take in a game because he did coach football, actually. Uh, coached at, uh, he was student manager at Princeton. And then he coached, I think, at Wesleyan uh, University, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, uh, King Albert and Queen Elizabeth of Belgium took in one of the games. It really was, it must have been just an electric time. And the football was top-notch, too. It, uh, lots of lead changes and, and lots of players who, uh, who were Hall of Fame caliber players, either College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, I don't think there were any Pro Football Hall of Famers in the AEF tournament, but there were definitely a lot of NFL players there. Uh, that would have been, it would have been a lot of fun to be there back in those couple of weeks for, uh, of March, 1919. Plus by then the flu, uh, the influenza epidemic had passed. So, so I would have <laughs> right. been safe. There you go. Yeah. And it just, the aftermath and the emotional roller coaster that those soldiers must've went on and then to top it off, having that tournament and then coming home, I just, I can't imagine what went through their minds it, it must it must have been it must have been neat and it's always better to go home as a champion than not but i guess only one team did come <laughs> right. home as champion so sure i mean they came home as that champion but they all came home as winners as americans and i know that this uh podcast i'm not really going to bring this into it but i'm glad that <laughs> that's a country yeah. i live in Absolutely. you know what i mean i mean with <laughs> people like you that to serve the the public, you know, selfishly. There's, did I say that right? Selfishly, selflessly. <laughs> but yeah, no, I just, uh, I don't know. I just, it makes me feel proud when I talk to people like you or military or listen to anything about that. It's just amazing what people are willing to do for other people they don't even know, kind of thing. I appreciate it. I mean, and it's a fun job. I love it. I mean, it's at times like this that you realize it's like, uh oh, it's not all fun and games, but. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's what we signed up for. So yeah, we're, we're ready to meet the challenge. So we, I just, 
didn't expect the challenge in this way. You know, I know what to do with a three-story building fully involved uh, in fire, but uh, how do I stop a pandemic? I don't know. I can't stop a pandemic, but I can. I guess I can deal with its after effects and and hopefully uh, hopefully keep myself as safe as possible too. So so far so good. Knock on wood. Right. Yeah. Good luck with everything that you have in your family. Is there any? thing that you have left last words for the fans of the show well i chatted this down i uh, when i think about war football and why war football gave birth to the nfl there are like there are five really big things five factors that uh that really helped war football give pro football that kick in the butt that it needed to uh to jump start and 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 lead to the birth of the NFL maybe 5 or 10 or even even 20 years earlier than it otherwise would have and the first thing we already touched upon a little bit these were the first true all-star teams ever formed where you had the former all-americans coming together guys who had played at different colleges uh uh just these really high quality football teams so that was that was the first factor uh, the second factor, and we talked about that a little bit too. The public loved these military teams. These these games were were played in front of sold out crowds. Uh, they sold out Wrigley Field and Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds, Harvard Stadium. Uh, we'll never really know whether it was for patriotism's sake or for the high quality football, but I like to think that quite a bit of it was for the latter. Uh, the third factor is that these players, you know, who had already some in some cases they had played their last college football game in 1908, 1909, and now it's almost 10 years later. Uh, they realized they still had a lot of football left in them. You know, why did they have to quit playing football? Why did they have to hang up the hang up the pads just because uh, their eligibility was up? You know, they'd already hung up their pads once before, and now they'd had another taste of football, and they realized how much they loved it. They were ready to keep playing, and and pro football was able to fill the void. Uh, another thing, another really important factor, a lot, a lot of barriers to professionalism fell because of the war, you know, before the war, uh, things like the Ohio league, uh, were, were established. And in Ohio, you didn't have people looking down at pro football as much as you did in other places, but in other places, people tended to look down at pro football. They saw it as beneath the college game. They saw it as, uh, kind of associated with roughnecks. This is, this is a blue collar game. I think, uh, Keith McClellan, the author who wrote the, the great book, the Sunday game, uh, noted that only about 20% of pro football players before the war had, uh, had graduated from college. So now, uh, the barriers to professionalism were falling because these are clean cut military veterans. And in a lot of cases, they're college graduates too, but these are, these are, these are uncle Sam's boys. How can we, how can we deny our support to them? Because these, these guys, these guys sacrificed for us. So, so a lot of barriers to professionalism fell specifically because of war football, the war football phenomenon. Uh, and then finally, and we touched on this a little bit, uh, probably most importantly, you had this amazing network effect and, uh, you might have a guy from Harvard, a guy from Pitt, a guy from Notre Dame, a guy from Illinois, all playing together. Uh, maybe they had read about each other. Maybe they had even played against each other. But uh, now they are playing and practicing together. They're with each other in the same barracks. Uh, if they were in the AEF, they literally were going into battle together. So they weren't just teammates. They got to know each other really, really well. Uh, and then you could tap into these networks once you were starting a football team. And George Hallis did that very famously, but Bud Talbot did that with the Dayton Triangles. Uh, a guy named Babe Ruetz, who had played at Camp Hancock in Georgia, did it when he uh, founded the, the Racine Legion or actually turned an old semi-pro team football team into the Racine Legion, an NFL caliber team. Uh, you had uh, an amazing, amazing network effect that happened. And uh, another big part of this networking effect, too, you had these these pure, quote unquote, college football players who were on teams now with guys who had played in the semi-pro teams in the Ohio League before the war. Uh, Patty Driscoll, uh, pl who played with George Hallis at Great Lakes, he's the guy that talked George Hallis into trying pro football in the first place. Uh, you had a guy named Tommy Holleran, who was an outstanding semi-pro player for the Akron pros. He, uh, he played at Camp Taylor in Louisville and he brought a couple of, couple of his team teammates with him into the league. Uh, you had a couple of guys in the AEF tournament who had played pro football and, and spread the word about pro football over there. So, uh, these pre-war pros, uh, mixing it up with the college players certainly had a lot to do with, uh, with that networking effect. So, so you had these four or five things that, uh, that really came together perfectly during world war one with military football. And, uh, 
one or two of those factors by themselves, maybe the NFL doesn't get launched or doesn't get launched as soon as early as it did. But you put all these factors together and uh, and put together a couple of strong personalities like George Halas, and uh, it, it's magic. The NFL is born. Yeah, those are five compelling uh, factors. I didn't even think about it, the networking. <laughs> when you started bringing that up about how they went to war together or they were in the same barracks together, and then, of course, like you said, intermixing the purebred college players with some of the semi-pros, it just never really dawned on me before that that could have been a huge factor in why we were able to start the league back yeah, then. Yeah, it was kind of a perfect storm in a good way. Right, yeah. Uh, so uh, other than that, though, I mean, anything else that you have that you want to share with the fans of the show? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll probably think of something at about two in the morning and jump up out of bed, but, uh, but that's okay. No, I think we, uh, I, I think we're, I think we're pretty good here. Oh, Chris, man, that was awesome. I learned a heck of a lot and I'm sure the fans of the show are going to be the same and I will leave them links to your football, uh, war football, war, world war one and the birth of the NFL book on, on the show notes. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Arnie. It's a, it's a pleasure to be talking with you. And, uh, and I, I just love telling the story. I could talk about this all day long. Yeah, I could tell you uh, definitely are passionate and you're a well-versed individual as far as how football went back in the, I will call it the early 20th century. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's been fun. It's been real. Keep it real, we shall. And I hope that we kept it real enough for you and you were able to enjoy this interview covering war football and how it helped propel the formation of the NFL. If you want to learn more about Chris and purchase his book, you can head over to thefootballhistorydude.com slash Chris Serb. That's Chris S-E-R-B. Also, I hope that you, you know, this show gave you some entertainment while you're stuck in your house with COVID-19. And you know, I got to say it. If you want to go ahead, you can share this with someone out there that's a football geek such as yourself. And maybe they benefit from the show. Maybe it helps them get this through this whole stuck in the house kind of thing. You can send them to the website. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.